to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we are marking 21 years since the signing of the Patriot Act. Also going to be touching on a new proposed slate of sanctions against Nicaragua. Also going to be touching on the reality behind Tulsi Gabbard and her move from Democrats to Republicans. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But to kick things off today, we are very happy to be joined by Don DeBar, host of the Weekday World. World Show on Radio Justice LA. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, it's my pleasure to be here. Absolutely. The pleasure is all ours, Don. And <clears throat> on this day, uh, 21 years ago, then President George W. Bush signed the USA Patriot Act, which is actually an acronym that stands for Uniting and Strengthening America by Providing Appropriate Tools Required to Intercept and Obstruct Terrorism. Because if it's one thing the U.S. government loves, it's a ridiculous acronym. And of course, this puts forth a, uh, a definition of domestic terror and things like that. And, you know, I think both uh, during that time and in the ensuing years of people have been pointing to how this Patriot Act, though on the surface it was supposedly designed to stop terrorism, really uh, uh, became weaponized against uh, the people of the U.S. itself and sort of greatly expanded the uh, surveillance state here in the U.S. Now, uh, Howard Zinn, in his book, A Terrorism and War, he quotes uh, Nancy Chang, who was an attorney at the uh, Center for uh, constitutional rights, who said that uh, the Patriot Act, quote, portends a wholesale suspension of civil liberties that will reach far beyond those who are involved in terrorist activities. She goes on to say that, quote, the criminalization of legitimate political dissent grants the executive branch unprecedented and largely unchecked surveillance powers, including the enhanced ability to track email and Internet usage, conduct sneak and peek searches, obtain sensitive personal records and monitor uh, financial transactions. And when we talk about sneak and peek searches, we're talking about uh, basically people's uh, offices and uh, residents being, uh, uh, you know, broken into by some of these different uh, 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 agencies and things like this. And so uh, given everything that we've seen in the last 21 years, Don, which is a whole lot, and I tend to think that the Patriot Act was part and parcel of uh, Bush opportunistically sort of uh, uh, capitalizing on a vulnerable U.S. population that was understandably shocked after uh, the September 11th um, uh, terrorist attacks. But, uh, you know, number one, I think about how Bush has been rehabilitated by liberals um, into this uh, acceptable, uh, almost grandfatherly kind of presence, while at the same time, uh, the ripple effects from the Patriot Act continue. So, you know, I could rant about this all day, I'm sure, but just sort of curious, particularly as someone uh, in New York, uh, uh, how you sort of uh, note the Patriot Act and its impacts. Well, first of all, uh, the rather contrived acronym <laughs> that you referenced at the beginning. Gee, it's amazing they could find all of that word salad to come up with USA Patriot that uh, in a comprehensive dismantling of the Bill of Rights, essentially. Um <clears throat> Let's put a little context around uh, just the legislative process uh, in Congress in general. We're talking about a 132-page act 
that was introduced 42 days after the planes hit the World Trade Center, 132 pages, um, introduced on the 23rd of October um, by uh, Jim Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, a Republican, and some others, a lot of joint sponsors, uh, passed through the House on uh, October 24th after being considered by the House Committee on the Judiciary, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Committee on Financial Services, Committee on International Relations, Committee on, uh, Committee on Energy and Commerce, including the Subcommittee on Telecommunications and the Internet, Committee on Education and the Workforce, Committee on Transportation and Infrastructure, and the Committee on Armed Services. From the 23rd to the 24th was considered by all those committees, 132 pages. Passed the House on the 24th, 357 to 66, and passed the Senate on the 25th, 98 to 1, signed by Bush on the 26th. Okay, that so um, the uh, enshrining of Roe v. Wade uh, in uh, legislative uh, protection, basically, by going through the same process thus far since 1972, 50 years has been beyond the ability of most of the time having most of the houses of Congress be in the hands of Democratic majorities. Somehow they couldn't do that. That's a paragraph. This is 132 pages. So to claim that this was in response, and it's your government at work, in response to a couple of airplanes, horrible as it was, being used as projectiles to take out a building, killing about as many people as the, the, the almost the entire war in, in uh, Ukraine right now, but about one quarter of the number of people that have di that died that were killed by the Kiev government installed by the United States from 2014 until uh, early this year. In other words, this thing was waiting for a moment, and the, the catalyzing moment was the event that took place or the events that took place on September 11th. And there have been many questions raised about exactly what the nature and uh, what the genesis of that event was. But the end result was a complete statutory negation of the Bill of Rights that has been, by the way, not just enacted uh, 21 years ago today, but renewed by a number of votes in Congress uh, on May 11, 2012, Barack Obama signing the extension of the sunsetting provisions, in other words, things that were supposed to terminate 10 years after the emergency was over, roving wiretaps reapproved, search of business records outside the constitutional protections approved, surveillance of lone wolves, meaning, in other words, any individual they decide, you know, is a shoe bomber or whatever other crazy nonsense they... they the state Patriot Act made the United States a police state unprecedented in the history of the world on the books and with, with the largest intelligence gathering capability, perhaps in the history of the galaxy, certainly in the history of planet Earth, uh, and a government that has more deaths under its fingers, starting with the genesis of the country, with the slaughter of the people that lived here. Uh, than in anything in history. So uh, I don't know how else would you characterize it other than USA Patriot Act.
I, I couldn't come up with an acronym for all of the stuff I just said. So we'll take USA Patriot Act. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, um, I think an aspect of this, <clears throat> this 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 surveillance state that has really exploded in the time since the Patriot Act, I mean, a, a big part of it has clearly been used um, to tamp down on political dissent. And I'm thinking specifically of um, and speaking of Barack Obama, uh, the, the, the Occupy movement and, and the coordinated sort of one fell swoop away that um, those encampments in New York and elsewhere were sort of all taken out in one fluid motion. And, and that was clearly something that uh, was highly organized, highly centralized, and the result of that kind of surveillance. And I feel like we see similar things even um, when we talk about uh, the George Floyd rebellions from uh, uh, a couple years ago. And so, you know, the fact that, you know, Barack Obama, someone who um, sort of promoted himself as a harbinger of serious progressive uh, social and political change in the United States to continue something like that, I think not only reveals a bit of the reality of, you know, who he is as a political figure, but also shows about how this uh, uh, seemingly really was sort of uh, a real effort by uh, that wing of the ruling class, by the political elites to basically keep a, a closer eye on the rest of us. And uh, of course, this had to be done under the guise of something that seemed to uh, benefit us, right? Because particularly, you're talking about October 2001. Who in that period uh, wouldn't have been agreeable to the idea of terrorist activity or potential uh, terrorist activity being surveilled and, uh, you know, uh, ideally uh, snuffed out and, and incarcerated or, or things like that? But that that isn't actually what happened. And I think also, Don, this is an example of how the war on terror was in reality a war of terror, both in terms of on the people of the United States and certainly against uh, the peoples of the different countries in the Middle East and elsewhere that uh, the U.S. has targeted in this way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, just to answer directly your question, who wouldn't um, out of the 100 members of the U.S. Senate, for example, um, every member of the U.S. Senate. Democrat or Republican approved this, with the exception of Russ Feingold, who's the other senator from Wisconsin, Richard Sensenbrenner, the Republican senator, for what it's worth, not, not that it matters in terms of this vote. Sensenbrenner was the one uh, that had his name, lead name at, on top of introducing the legislation. Um, and uh, Russ Feingold uh, was the only no vote. And then uh, Senator Landrieu from uh, Louisiana uh, abstained. So who would who would uh, stand against this? Uh, there was one senator that would stand against it, and one that kind of dodged out of the way. Uh, in the House, uh, there was uh, you know a different uh, configuration. I guess you had. Um, let me see if I can get to the House vote uh, quickly. It's uh, there were sixty six people that voted no, um, and uh, and there were three hundred and fifty seven. That voted yes. Again, this is a heavy um, uh, uh, weighted uh, thing by a uh, partisan. Um, you had uh, the nays uh, were, were uh, people like uh, uh, Baldwin, uh, Barrett, uh, Blumenauer. Well, let's see some names that we would know. Uh, uh, Jackson Lee, for example, Dennis Kucinich, um, uh, Cynthia McKinney, uh, Meek uh, from Florida, that one. Uh, Bernie Sanders at the time was a uh, 
Is that Bernie? No, was he a senator then? Or no? well, I think he was in the House, though, and that's, I think it's Bernie. Um, and uh, Udall, uh, both of them, uh, Velasquez from uh, New York City. You know, there were people that were, and, and uh, Maxine Waters, for example, also. There were people that were standing against it then, only 66 of them, you know, again, as opposed to 357. But there are some people that actually stood up, and then there were nine um, that uh, abstained. So the media, as you recall, I remember it well, um, and I was a skeptic, but just as an aside, I, I was on my way to the office, which was an was opposite direction of uh, rush hour traffic. I live in Austin, New York, and was going to work in Peekskill, New York, when Drove past Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant, by the way, which apparently was the secondary target. Thankfully, they didn't hit that uh, as the planes were going by, I guess, because it was about nine o'clock when I went past there. Walked into the office. I had heard on the radio that the first plane had hit. And I was thinking, eh, it's probably, they're making a big deal out of it. It was probably a plane crash and so much traffic over New York City. When I walked into the office, they had the TV on. And um, while I was there standing with the kids that worked in the office, they were all in their 20s and early 30s, the, the second plane hit. And the first thing I said, I said it out loud. And they were puzzled at what I meant. I said, Reichstag fire. And they said, what does that mean? I said, I, I don't want to give you a whole history lesson because let's watch this. But uh, there's something called the enabling law that's coming next. And that's exactly what the Patriot Act was. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, um, what what that raises in my mind is about how, you know, this point that you make about how during that period there were still people in Congress who actually would speak against this. Now, you fast forward to 2022, Don, and we see that uh, uh, the progressives recently rescinded what was, frankly, a pretty tepid uh, uh, kind of request to the Biden administration to uh, push for a uh, some kind of diplomatic talks with Russia or for the U.S. to at least encourage diplomatic diplomatic talks between Russia and Ukraine because they noted, I think correctly, because we make the same point here on the show, that continuing uh, uh, sort of this this funding of uh, Ukraine and arming of Ukraine only pushes everyone involved closer to an open nuclear conflict, which could have catastrophic uh, results for humanity itself. Now, mind you, they never said uh, to end the aid. They actually said that they uh, supported continuing the aid, but also thinking that this diplomatic piece should be pushed as well. Now, the extent to which that even makes sense, I think, is maybe another question. But even still, the fact that that was rescinded so quickly and everyone involved just running away as fastly as they can from uh, criticizing uh, Washington's role in the war in Ukraine in any way. And, you know, these different signatories knocking themselves out to distance themselves from it, I think says a lot about uh, sort of the, the political ripples of this moment that we're talking about in 2001 to where now if you if you critique uh, the U.S. forever war machine, if you critique U.S. imperialism in any way, right, even if it isn't fundamentally challenging, well, then, you know, not only are you um, accused of 
being like a slave to the criminal or whatever. But in the U.S. context, you're accused of, you know, being a right winger or being pro-Trump because we know how the Republicans are, you know, saying that they're going to cut aid to Ukraine uh, if they gain power. Now, obviously, the Republicans sort of have their own uh, self-interested reasons for doing that. But this is sort of the moment that we're in. And so when we look at this past 24 years and we see that there really is no anti-war element within the U.S. government, certainly we don't hear these perspectives in the corporate press anymore. I think uh, what we've actually seen is a real de-evolution of a politics here in the U.S. and a, a marked uh, move to the right, which I think started before 2001, but uh, clearly has only gained momentum in the time since. Oh, for sure. Listen, um, <laughs> there's a lot in there, but uh, first of all, just uh, for some perspective, I would say that the you know the defining moment, uh, you know, defining issue at the moment. Uh, obviously, is uh, whether or not we're going to have a, a full-scale war with Russia, and by the way, with China, because that's it's going to be that that scale. If if, if we have a an actual exchange of uh, fire that doesn't go out peter out right away, then if there's a protracted war, it's going to involve Russia and China, and then who on this side and on the U.S. side, whoever they can muster together, and the, they might be surprised at some of the people that change sides in the midst of that too. Um, you know, they, they started uh, taking the temperature here when they started funding, you know, in earnest separately from the all the dark money that they have, the CIA's, you know, black budget or whatever you call it, and uh, the Pentagon's black budget or whatever you call it, with actual appropriations specifically designed for Ukraine. Some of it masked as, uh, you know, the, the humanitarian aid or whatever. We're going to try to get nice burials for the in the East and some Russians, if you can, I guess that's a humanitarian aid or outright military funding. And that's been up to about 70 to $80 billion this year, which is larger than the entire annual military budget of Russia, covering the real estate from the Balkans and Baltics to the Sea of Japan. So, that, so that's how much money we've put in. And then the EU at our direction at gunpoint has put in almost the same amount. So that there have been votes on this. And in the United States, beginning in March, there was pushback from the Republican Party, not a single dissenting vote from the Democrats who were in the majority in both houses, not even a symbolic one, like from someone like Barbara Lee, you know, these people that are supposedly the real pacifists or from anyone supposedly progressives like the squad or even anyone from the CBC saying, you know, We've been trying to get $70 billion out of you guys since 1865, and we haven't been able to do it. What's with these Ukrainians? Or, say, Puerto Rico after every flood, or wherever else you want to go. Uh, out of that, one vote in the Senate, for example, in May, 11 Republicans voted against it, not a single Democrat. In the House on that vote, 69 Republicans voted against it, not a single Democrat. So now, towards the election, as signs are going up, like here in Austin, New York, okay, Democratic town, the Democrats, I mean, the Republicans or somebody, because there's no credit on the bottom of it, a sign, Democrats equal more war, Democrats equal more taxes, Democrats equal more lies, don't vote for Democrats. That's the only voicing of World War III in any of the campaigns going on here for Congress, for governor, for the legislature, for any of the offices, this sign is the only thing I've seen, and it ain't a Democrat hanging the sign up. So now you have you know this squad, so to speak, 
the progressives or whatever, a couple of them sign on to a letter because they're getting nervous. And within a day and a half of the letter being released, not only do they say, well, uh, we wouldn't have signed it, they retract it publicly. More publicly than the letter, you know, it got more publicity than the letter did. <laughs> yeah. We have a very, very, very dangerous political condition here because even if the, uh, the Republicans are farming it opportunistically, they've got their politicians here, what it means is they sense themselves that there's a constituency among their base that doesn't want this war and is significant enough for them to raise it as a campaign issue. The Democrats, I marked with them how many times against the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and God knows where else. I know they're out there, but A, nobody's catering to them that is entirely suppressed by the by the entire party, from village trustee to president of the United States, and they're going along with it. Not a letter to the editor from them, not, nothing. That's the condition we have right now as we shoot guns at Russia from the border. Yeah, it, it is. It is dangerous. And, and, and it's a poisonous uh, uh, landscape that we find ourselves in here in the U.S. to where, as we've been saying, critiquing imperialism in any way is basically verboten. And I think you're correct, uh, Don, that uh, the Republicans, I think, uh, shrewdly have uh, picked up on this increasing sentiment amongst American people um, who have had Russia thoroughly demonized in their consciousness, but who are sort of scratching their heads and asking questions about the fact that seemingly endless money is uh, uh, flowing to Ukraine. Meanwhile, the price of everything here is going up with uh, next to no relief coming from a Biden White House that still uh, expects us to support Democrats uh, come the midterms. And what are they doing to try to encourage people to do that? Well, they're dangling abortion rights over people's heads uh, like a carrot. Uh, we saw the marijuana piece. We saw the student loan debt uh, whole piece. And so I think that this is a big part of what is feeding the, the political crisis that's going on in this country. And as ever, I have zero uh, hope, faith or trust that uh, these elected officials can actually turn this thing around. And as such, I think there has to be an organized independent element that's really going to fight for these things. But we thank you so much, Don, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the latest uh, sanctions placed on Nicaragua by the United States. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by John Perry, a writer for the Council on Hemispheric Affairs. John, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Sean. I look forward to talking about this tricky subject. Absolutely. And uh, John, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden and his administration has uh, levied a new series of sanctions against uh, the Sandinista government of Nicaragua, uh, sanctioning the country's gold industry, also imposing uh, visa restrictions on more than 500 uh, supporters of a current president, Daniel Ortega, according to reports. And so, you know, uh, the, the, the sanctioning of Nicaragua by the U.S., 
unfortunately, is a pretty uh, common thing here, as we know, John. And so I'm wondering what is really motivating this uh, latest round and what do you think is really at play here? Well, let's let's get this um, in perspective at the moment. Um, Nicaragua has been subject to sanctions, but they've mainly been personal sanctions against individuals in the government or associated with the government. Now, and, what not, and also there have been restrictions on international funding, which uh, have only partly worked from the US point of view. But now the, the US administration seems to want to ramp up the action against Nicaragua and hit the poorest people in Nicaragua, which, as you know, is the third poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. So now we're seeing uh, sanctions against uh, gold mining. It may seem to the listener like, well, you know, gold mining is that really important. Well, actually, gold is the biggest export from the from Nicaragua at the moment, along with uh, things like coffee and timber and uh, other foodstuffs, beef, which is sold to the United States. So it's kind of emblematic, and um, obviously uh, the gold companies are, are wealthy companies, but they employ local Nicaraguans, and most importantly, they pay taxes to the government, which finances the social projects which the, the government carries out. So here we're talking about a government which in the last 15 years has built 24 new public hospitals, and that's in a country of only 6 million people. Um, so there's tremendous social investments taking place. And if the U.S. continues to attack uh, foreign businesses that produce export earnings and taxes, it is directly attacking the social investment which the Nicaraguan government is, is, is taking place. And however they address the, the sanctions, that it must, they must know perfectly well that this is going to be the effect. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the case. And, you know, it seems as though uh, the U.S. is still sort of harping on um, these uh, allegations against the Ortega government around, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically uh, accusations of suppressing uh, media that's critical of the government or imprisoning uh, political opponents and things like that. Civic leaders, uh, Roman Catholic priests, all things uh, that we've been hearing about uh, here lately, particularly I think uh, not that long ago, they uh, were having elections in Nicaragua and this all uh, came up as well. And so, I mean, it seems as though uh, the same old sort of uh, tropes and, and things are sort of being utilized to 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 justify this ongoing uh, aggression against uh, Nicaragua by uh, Washington, John. And I mean, it just leads me to a question of, well, why is the U.S. so keen on uh, attacking uh, Nicaragua just sort of in general? I mean, this is uh, nothing new. Certainly, uh, you know, since the, the Sandinista Revolution triumph in 1979, we've been seeing uh, the U.S. interferes in different ways. And uh, just understanding history, we know that uh, U.S. involvement and interference in Nicaragua certainly predates 1979. But, you know, what 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 is sort of the uh, the real reason or the motive you think that Washington has for targeting a country like Nicaragua in this way? Well, you're quite right to put a historical perspective on it since the United States has been interfering in Nicaragua since the 19th century. So it's got a very long history of experience of, 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 uh, of, of putting sanctions or other forms of interference uh, on Nicaragua. Um, let's get this straight. I mean, the, 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 the U.S. government says that it's concerned about human rights, democracy, all the usual things that it comes out with. But in reality, what it's concerned about is that here is a, a popular 
um, successful government that has a mixed economy and which is investing very heavily in social programs and which is now getting support from Russia and from China. Not just from Russia and China, it's also getting support from Japan, South Korea, India, various other countries. Um, but the fact that Nicaragua has recently looked more towards Russia and China for social investment is clearly a source of big annoyance to the Biden administration. Regardless of the fact that the Biden administration, when they put money into a country like Nicaragua, won't put it into social programs. They'll put it into democracy promotion and training young people to um, take a political line against the current government. In other words, they'll, they'll put money, they'll put millions of dollars into uh, programs that uh, suit US priorities. But unlike Russia, China, Japan, India, they won't put money into big social programs that build social housing, build hospitals, enable new roads to be built and so on, which is what the Nicaraguan government wants to do. And I just think that uh, you remember there was an old phrase that Nicaragua in the 1980s was the threat of a good example. Unfortunately, the same still applies. It's still the threat of a good example. And the U.S. wants to snuff out that threat. Yeah, definitely. And I'm also wondering, um, given some of the other dynamics that we're seeing in Latin America uh, right now with, you know, a number of different uh, progressive uh, governments coming into power. I mean, even this coming weekend, there's going to be a, pres a presidential election in Brazil, uh, which sees the popular former president, uh, progressive Lula da Silva, face off against the far right Jair Bolsonaro. And so in a broader sense, John, I'm just wondering, how does Nicaragua sort of um, uh, feature or factor into a uh, Latin American region that seems to be moving uh, in a more progressive direction as of this moment? Well, I think that the, the, the movement is clearly very, very important and very welcome. And uh, no one uh, would be more delighted than uh, Nicaraguans if uh, Lula were to win in Brazil this uh, in, in this weekend's election. And I think it's, 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 it's been very important, the victory of Petro in, in uh, Gustav Petro in, in, um, in Colombia, uh, the victory of Xiomara Castro in neighbouring Honduras. These have um, shown that um, countries like Nicaragua aren't alone in Latin America, that now there's the general uh, progressive wave uh, in political terms in Latin America. It's different in different countries, uh, but obviously Nicaraguans and the Nicaraguan government hope that it can work with these progressive newly progressive governments, such as those in Honduras and Colombia, um, to, to re-establish um, uh, political and economic links uh, within, within Latin America. And I'm sure that the US don't like this. They want uh, the countries in Latin America to take the US line. They, much, they don't mind mild reformism like is uh, being carried out in Chile. Um, but they don't like radical reform, such as uh, Nicaragua is attempting to do. And they want to control uh, these countries. And they do this by pulling on the trade um, relations, which all of these countries have with the U.S. The U.S. is, um, is uh, Nicaragua's biggest export market. And so clearly Nicaragua and its people will suffer markedly if um, sanctions are imposed and strengthened as, the, as perhaps the U.S. administration wants to do. 
Yeah, yeah, that that definitely seems to be what's uh, what what's happening here. And, and really, I also meant to ask John in terms of these. Uh, allegations that continue to be levied uh, against um, the Ortega government in terms of political suppression and things like that. I mean, what is the the reality of that? Because, I mean, I remember not that long ago, the reports around this were, I mean, breathless and, you know, saying that the Ortega government basically wasn't allowing anyone else to run and was jailing people simply for trying to run against him. I mean, what what is the reality uh, with all of that? Well, in November, in November's elections, November last year, uh, two-thirds of the population of, of the, the electorate took part. Um, there were five candidates for presidency, and Daniel Ortega won 75% of the vote. Um, now, those of, the, of those five candidates, uh, two at least were representing parties that had been in power um, only 15 years ago. Um, so saying that there's no opposition in Nicaragua is, is just nonsense. Um, but what the U.S. doesn't want to recognize is that there is big popular support for the Sandinista government because of what it's doing. It's building hospitals, building roads, building social housing, extending electricity across the whole of the country, improving water supplies, um, improving schools, doing all the sorts of things which really the Biden administration should be concentrating on in the US and isn't doing. Uh, And I don't think it likes to see that happening. As to the so-called political prisoners, well, there are a hundred or so people in prison and they've been put in prison because of their activities in in organising violent uh, attacks against government institutions um, during 2018 and subsequent years running up to the election last year. And really, it was most important after the violence in 2018 sponsored by these US-funded groups that the Nicaraguan government clamped down and re-established the safety and security which Nicaraguans expect in the country and which it had prior to 2018, unfortunately now, uh, which has returned. And, you know, it's, it's now, again, the safest country in Central America with a very low homicide rate and people can walk safely in the streets, which, of course, is the, the first requirement of making any economic or social progress. Yeah. And, you know, recently on a kind of related note, John, I was looking at this um, piece on uh, Telesaur English that was discussing uh, the Nicaragua government uh, authorizing cooperation on on nuclear energy with Russia. And it made me think about, uh, you know, the role that a country like Nicaragua plays, uh, not just in Latin America, as we just discussed, but sort of in these broader um, geopolitical issues as well. well. Obviously, one of the most pressing being the ongoing a war in Ukraine and uh, 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 what that means in terms of dynamics between uh, the U.S. and Russia and a conflict between those uh, two entities. You know what I mean? And so I feel like Latin America in, in a number of ways, I mean, it's, uh, you know, obviously a very uh, important region. And I think in terms of how they've been maneuvering on this question of Russia and Ukraine, along with uh, most of the world, I should say, has been a uh, noteworthy. And so how do you uh, situate Nicaragua within some of these broader uh, geopolitical uh, trends, John? I mean, do you think that it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, considerable or substantive, really? Or is it more so just as simple as a government, you know, uh, having dealings with another government of its choice type of thing? I think it's a combination of um, uh, Nicaragua being very well aware of the need for peace, uh, both regionally and globally. Uh, having, having, uh, being a country that has suffered so many wars and some, so much violence 
uh, over the past several decades. Um, it's, it, it primarily wants to see a resolution, a peaceful resolution of the conflict in, in Ukraine. But obviously now that it's getting support from um, Russia and China, it will tend to align its foreign policies uh, more with Russia and China. Um, and the U.S. sees this as a threat, but really this is ridiculous. You know, it's a, we're a country of just over six million people. We have one of the lowest um, uh, levels of spending on defence in the world. Um, Nicaragua isn't a, isn't a, a threat even to its neighbours, let alone to the enormous country to our north, the U.S., with its fantastically powerful uh, military. Um, so. People here just want to be left in peace by the U.S., want to have peaceful relations with people in the U.S. and with the U.S. government and, uh, you know, just to be left alone and for us to be able to pursue our own regional policies and contacts in, in, a, in a way which any small country should be allowed to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think one thing that people in the United States um, don't quite grasp, I think, because of the pronouncements from our government and uh, the corporate-owned press, is the support and the popularity that a lot of these governments that the U.S. says are its enemies actually enjoy, with uh, Nicaragua, I think, uh, being just one of them. You know, it seems that any country that the U.S. deems as an enemy state, whether it's uh, Russia, Iran, uh, uh, you know, uh, Syria, the DPRK, Cuba, Nicaragua, or, or what have you, there's an image that's always presented of this despotic leader or leadership usually boiling down to an individual, in this case, of course, uh, Daniel Ortega. But it, th there's no consideration given to what the people of that country actually think uh, of this leadership and whether or not that squares with what we hear from Washington. And so, I mean, John, I mean, given the uh, uh, programs and uh, things that you've laid out that uh, the Sandinistas have been uh, engaging and working on in the time since they've been in power, I mean, what what is the, the sense amongst the uh, Nicaraguan people about this uh, uh, government and how is it that Sandinistas have been able to stay in power uh, for all this time? Well, let's give an example. The, uh, as, you, as you might know, um, Nicaragua's population is concentrated heavily on the Pacific side of the country and the Caribbean side has a much lower population and historically was cut off from the Pacific side. There were no roads, uh, no, certainly no paved roads and most of the communication was by water. Recently, the, the government, in last, well, in the last few years, the government has been putting in proper, proper paved roads to the Caribbean coast. And just a few day, days ago, opened this enormous uh, bridge over the river Wawa, um, which meant that uh, um, uh, vehicles and buses and so on could get from the Pacific coast to the, to the Atlantic coast uh, five hours more quickly than they could before. This is the kind of investment that is taking place. And when that bridge opened, thousands of people went to the opening, even though it was in the middle of nowhere, you know, in a sparsely populated area, just to celebrate the fact that this, um, this new road had been built and they could now travel freely from one side of the country to the other. There is this tremendous popular support here for the Sandinista government. Of course, there are people who disagree with it, but the majority do support it. And it's very clear whenever you whenever you talk to people in the streets. And the U.S. should simply accept that. You know, if Nicaraguans want 
risk Sandinista government with its mixed economy and its social investment. Um, what's the problem? You know, that's what people want. They voted for it. Let them please uh, just um, enjoy the uh, social investment that's taking place. And if they decide they don't want this government in future, well, they can vote it out at some point. Yeah, totally. And see, that's the thing. Sort of the, the, the basic processes of these countries is uh, and their democratic processes, their electoral processes. They are, these are also things that that we simply don't know about. And I think that that's uh, uh, purposeful because if uh, the reality of this isn't highlighted, then it's a lot easier to help people believe that, you know, these different governments, whether it's the Sandinistas or uh, uh, whichever government we could point to, it's a lot easier to paint them as this, uh, you know, undemocratic, despotic sort of force that is uh, uh, imposing itself on the people. But in reality, John, I feel like if we take a look around the U.S. today, I actually think there's a lot to be learned, um, even if we're just talking about uh, how a lot of these different Latin American democracies are operating. Uh, while meanwhile, here in the U.S., uh, frankly, faith in some of those same institutions are dwindling more and more the way uh, the more that time goes on. And in my humble opinion, is uh, pushing us further into a serious political crisis here. And so that that to me seems like the flip side of this whole concept of a threat of a good example. It means that we also miss out on things that would actually be beneficial simply because uh, uh, this is what helps justify and prop up uh, the machinations of U.S. imperialism. You know what I mean? And so then the incessant propaganda about countries like uh, Nicaragua and others that we could name, I mean, to me, it seems necessary for the maintenance of U.S. hegemonic power, which I think is on the decline. I think Washington is very aware of this, and so are other countries, which is why we're seeing uh, different governments, you know, maneuvering to try to blaze uh, different paths uh, for when the unipolar world finally uh, comes to an end. But, I mean, in the final analysis, John, I mean, it really does seem like we lose. We, meaning uh, people in the U.S., and I think I can include uh, the whole of the West in general, we really lose out when we attack uh, these kinds of uh, governments who have gone through their own sort of process of democratization and revolution and things like that. And I think in reality, we should be looking to a lot of them uh, for examples on how to solve a lot of the pressing issues facing the U.S. today. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, for example, uh, around 200 people from the U.S. were here at the time of the elections last year. And they observed a very clean and very efficient electoral process. And actually, a lot of them said they wish that there was a similar uh, clean and transparent process uh, existing in the United States in, in your presidential elections. So I think there are plenty of lessons that could be learned from uh, Nicaragua's example. Uh, if only the U.S. administration would pay more attention to the good side of everything that happens in this part of the world rather than always concentrating on the bad or the supposed bad. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, 
social and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, leaving the Democratic Party and the reality of uh, the politics inherent in that. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Ari Paul, contributing writer to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, also known as FAIR. Ari, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, Ari, uh, sometime here recently, we've seen uh, Tulsi Gabbard, former presidential candidate, uh, publicly announced that she was leaving the Democratic Party, formally joining the uh, Republicans, claiming that the Democrats were being motivated by uh, a, quote, anti-right racism and cowardly wokeness and saying that they're under the control of an elitist cabal and things like that. And uh, I feel like this was some that was designed to make sort of a, a, a big splash. But uh, you actually have an interesting uh, sort of analysis of this that you recently published on FAIR entitled, If a Democrat Fails into Fox News, Should It Make a Sound? And you give sort of a news uh, analysis of the responses for uh, uh, Gabbard's uh, departure and also took like a hard look at uh, a lot of her politics and stances that she's made in the past that perhaps make this uh, not quite as surprising as it was framed. And so uh, to begin, Ari, I was hoping you could sort of break down um, what did you find in your analysis of different uh, news platforms following the uh, uh, departure of Tulsi Gabbard? And how do you think this tracks uh, with her political past? Yeah, I mean, obviously, her switch to the de- uh, to leave the Democratic Party, um, invoking wokeness and uh, anti-white racism, was sort of you know the the right wing media jumped all over it. The National Review, the New York Post, and obviously, she'd already been a Fox News contributor, and Fox News um, you know, did several segments on it. Um, she'd already been. Um, you know, a fill-in host for Tucker Carlson show. Uh, so the right-wing media had kind of hyped it up. That part isn't as surprising. What was interesting on the sort of the more the mainstream press is there seemed to be a little bit of a split. The New York Times, Washington Post uh, didn't really look much at it, uh, but a lot of the mainstream press really, you know, did echo her uh, departure, NPR, CNN, USA Today, Guardian, LA Times, a few others. Um, and it's sort of interesting because when you really reflect on the gravity of what she's done, it really should, is not that surprising. She's always had um, right-wing views in certain ways. She's been um, back and forth on LGBT issues. Uh, first, she was against, uh, she was very against LBG, LBGT freedom, then she was for it when she wanted to align herself with progressives. She's now lately become very uh, anti-trans and also outspoken supporter of the anti, uh, the so-called don't say gay legislation bills. Um, she had always been, had, um, the, she'd always had a, um, an affinity for the Indian far right movement, the Hindu nationalist movement. Uh, she had always been a critic of Islamic, so-called Islamist politics, uh, which had gotten a lot. She always, so she'd always been the focus of criticism from um, Islamic rights activists. So, in a way, her switch to out of the Democratic Party um, is a shouldn't be that surprising given where her politics have been, but also she doesn't really represent any kind of massive shift when she ran for president. She, first of all, she's an ex. Uh, Lawmaker. She's not a current lawmaker, so she doesn't actually her the switch out of the Democratic Party doesn't actually shift power in any real way. And as a presidential candidate, she was sort of a blip on the radar. She did it. She came in, um, you know, at the very bottom of the list. 
um, didn't care, you know, only carried a few, de- only one of a few delegates. Uh, so, and she doesn't really represent a constituency in uh, her home state that is really calling for this kind of right wing politics. So it doesn't really represent a, je- a shift beyond her own position, uh, uh, or it doesn't really represent any kind of shift in the Democratic Party either. Yeah. And, you know, if there's one thing that we know about uh, the right wing here in the U.S. is that they absolutely love, you know, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote, you know, former lefty, you know, someone who uh, left the left. It it's sort of uh, it is a, a big PR thing for them because it's sort of in their minds proves um, uh, the correctness of their line. And, and, yeah, it's just been sort of interesting to see how throughout the years or over the last few years, I should say, Tulsi Gabbard has kind of uh, played this role uh, as a progressive uh, uh, despite what what's documented about her politics, as you laid out, Ari. And, you know, I think another aspect of this that kind of muddied the water is, you know, how she uh, supported the, the Bernie Sanders uh, presidency bid. She ultimately endorsed Joe Biden, I mean, as recently as uh, uh, 2020 and things like that. But, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it's hard not to, once we take a look at sort of the reality of uh, her politics and the things that uh, she supports. I mean, you almost get the feeling that, uh, you know, this is someone who maybe, you know, has an idea about, you know, where she wants uh, her career to go or the place she wants to be or the kind of platform she wants to have and functions maybe more off of that, uh, more so than, you know, any real uh, political conviction or uh, uh, principle. But this is coming uh, at a time in the uh, uh, American political mainstream that I think is sort of increasingly uh, polarizing with uh, an encroaching sort of far right uh, campaign from the Republicans and at least what I would describe as a center right kind of uh, at least, uh, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of projection or performance of a fight back against it from the Democrats. Now, the extent to which that is substantive, I think, is a matter of uh, some debate. But uh, in terms of of talking about uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard and how all of this has uh, uh, unfolded, Ari. I mean, it kind of feels like a, a, a more of a footnote moment that was presented as a, a headline moment. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think there. I mean, unfortunately, the reality is, is when you look at her statement, she sort. It sort of you can tell that it was uh, carefully worded to hit all the buzzwords that um, a lot of these different media outlets like to jump on. I mean, the unfortunate reality is if you go on YouTube and look through podcasts, um, just the the number of media outlets that are just centered on these ideas about uh, there's too much quote-unquote wokeness, which is sort of originated as a general term to mean general awareness about racial and gender oppression to now really mean what the Republicans used to call political correctness in the 1990s uh, or cancel culture, anti-white racism. I mean, these are just buzzwords that media outlets will eat up. Um, So even someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who's kind of not really an important political figure, can kind of gain hype if she uh, hits upon those things, especially for the right, but also the center, because the center, like the center, the centrist media does like to cover these things too. Um, I mean, one thing we gotta also keep in mind here is that you know, she did build this identity as someone on the left faction of the Democratic Party as a progressive, but that's almost entirely built around uh, her split from the Democratic National Committee to support Bernie Sanders. And while one could say, well, she 
you know, had a big split with the Democratic establishment. She supported Bernie Sanders. Um, it's not clear how much her actual on the game groundwork really organized for Bernie Sanders. And more to the point, after, you know, as you pointed out, she ultimately um, got behind uh, uh, Biden, uh, as most everybody did. Um, you know, she has not been aligned with the other. Um, or it, you know, she's not in Congress anymore, but in her time in Congress, had not really aligned with the growing progressive faction in the House that had called for more economic justice measures that were looking at racial justice um, and workers' rights issues. So largely, this was all based off of a big performance uh, in her split with the DNC. Uh, which builds up her brand and is building up her brand more as she becomes more popular with the Fox News crowd. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. And, you know, another thing that you point out in your uh, piece that you actually, I think, alluded to earlier about her status sort of as a former lawmaker is that, you know, there she had no position, actually, in the Democrats to resign from. You, you know what I mean? And so it kind of brings us back to this this issue of uh, of, it, of her departure, not really signaling uh, much of a, uh, a seed change there uh, from within uh, uh, the Democrats. And so, I mean, it, it seems and it was funny, your piece also reminded me of uh, the ad that she made for Bernie Sanders um, a, a few years back that, you know, it almost seems like it's more about her, this video ad, than it is about him. But uh, even regardless uh, uh, of that, I mean, it just feels kind of like a, a, a lateral move and perhaps a career move and things like that. And I don't know, I think in a broader sense, Ari, I'm wondering what you think that this sort of thing signals, if anything, about uh, uh, some of the uh, political dynamics of our current moment uh, here in the United States. I mean, I think that generally speaking, even if we're just talking about, you know, culture and society in general, we're very much in a time of spectacle where uh, people, uh, you know, uh, platform these uh, sorts of things like they're making uh, like a profound statement, regardless of whether or not there's substance to it. And, I, you know, I think social media culture has uh, an impact on that, and I kind of feel like what we've seen from Tulsi Gabbard here um, is an is an example of that in a way. And so, uh, what I'm really wondering is, do you think this is indicative of some broader trend within American politics, or I mean, is it more likely just you know an individual sort of you know maneuvering as they see fit, sort of for their own interests? Well, yeah, I think it's it's two things. I think for her, I mean, like you said, she's no longer in Congress. Even when she was in Congress, she didn't have much of a leadership position, um, so she didn't hold much sway. She's really you know, rebranded herself, like many other ex lawmakers, to be a media personality. She's on Fox. She has she's promoting her own show at this point. She's doing the media rounds. Um, I mean, in that sense, she's not very different from a lot of former lawmakers who either go into media or maybe go into lobbying, go into consulting, which is. On its own, be an unremarkable story. Uh, that if she goes to Fox News, the fact that her politics that she would lead the Democratic Party is just sort of a, an afterthought to what's clearly a shift in her, not just her politics, but also what she wants to be professionally, not not a lawmaker, but a media personality. And so you could sort of write that off as kind of cynical opportunism or just interest in the press. Um, but I think it does actually represent. Um, some shifts in the right that we're seeing, uh, her history with an affection for the uh, Hindu national movement, the Indian um, far-right movement uh, that influenced her politics very early on, 
um, shouldn't be ignored, largely because you see on Fox News the nativist MAGA politics that are rising up, despite the fact that they would say that they're anti-global, anti-globalist, look to other forms of far-right nationalism. For example, on, on uh, Tucker Carlson's show, on which uh, she has been a fill-in host, uh, they have shown a lot of... Uh, they have interviewed uh, the far-right leaders of Hungary, of uh, Poland, they've looked to Brazil and the uh, uh, possibly outgoing president Bolsonaro um, as sort of leaders that they would admire, nationalist movements that they admire. Um, the Indian nationalist movement is one of those is one of those movements, um, and the current leader of India is sort of one of those types of leaders that they would possibly want to emulate. So you can't really ignore this, these sort of alliances that are getting built. So clearly she, knowing what her background is and where she's going, you know, now she's pandering to the anti-trans crowd, pandering to the anti-gay crowd, um, having long, you know, won over a lot of the, um, the right-wing uh, elements that were raising flags about so, you know, so-called Islamism. I mean, in that sense, she almost sounds like a, early aughts, war on terror, neoconservative. Um, all those things are connected. Yeah, definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Ari, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, October 26, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. And at that time, you'll be able to give us a ring at 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. Our operators are standing by. You can also download our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio underscore by underscore any underscore means. You can also hear the show at sputnik.mave.digital. That's sputnik.mave.digital. You can follow us on social media, Facebook and Twitter.com slash BAM necessary. And as always, we are broadcasting and streaming live from rumble.com slash C as in cat slash B-A-M necessary. But wherever you are in this world, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. And we are very happy to be joined for the hour today by Dr. Jared Ball, a father husband, professor of Africana Studies at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland, the curator of imixwhatilike.org, and the author of the book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. Dr. Ball, thanks so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Glad I could join you. I hope you can hear me okay. Yeah, you sound all right on this end, Dr. Ball, and I assure you the pleasure is all ours. And, you know, I wanted to bring you on today, doctor, to talk about something that 
I actually had no intention of discussing here on By Any Means Necessary. And that's this whole issue with Kanye West and his uh, anti-Semitic comments on a couple of different platforms and uh, uh, the fallout from it. Now, I avoided it for a minute, honestly, just because, I mean, y'all know me. I try to kind of stay away from celebrity hijinks and particularly with someone like uh, Kanye. I mean, it's just kind of like a cyclical thing. He says or does something outrageous. Folks get upset and then it's kind of on to the next thing. But this is uh, a, a little uh, different, I think. And not too long before all of this, of course, uh, infamously, there was that whole uh, like White Lives Matter shirts and hoodies thing that he was doing at some uh, uh, fashion show. But before we get uh, too deep in it. I actually want to play a few clips from uh, Kanye. This is uh, four clips. The first three you hear will be from um, that Tucker Carlson interview. This is the part that was edited out. And the fourth and final clip that you hear when he's talking about George Floyd is when he was on Drink Champs, which is a popular uh, uh, hip hop podcast uh, hosted by uh, Noriega. So we'll go ahead and run those clips and then I want to come back. Planned Parenthood was made by Margaret Sanger, a known eugenics with the KKK to control the Jew population. When I say Jew, I mean the 12 lost tribes of Judah, the blood of Christ, who the race, the people known as the race black really are. This is who our people are, the blood of Christ. This as a Christian is my belief exactly what our culture is based on. Think about us judging each other on how white we could talk or be like, you know, a Jewish person judging another Jewish person on how good they danced or something. I mean, that's probably like a bad, uh, is that when people are gonna get mad at that? But uh, uh, another thing that they do um, that I probably want to edit that out in front of that like that. Uh, okay, so, you know, I was talking to Ice Cube today and we got really beat up in 2020 for saying we need to approach things a different way and not just be trauma drunk. Right. Which is a term that, I, you know, God just hit me with in the past couple of days. We are no longer trauma drunk. We are no longer trauma drunk and we're no longer trauma bonding and we're no longer woke in the sense of what woke is, because woke is just complaining about racism, but not doing anything about it. So what we're gonna do about it is say, hey, you know what? Y'all not gonna send nobody at me based on my opinion. You asked the question before, it drove me crazy to not be able to say that I like Trump. I was biting my tongue on my political opinion because I thought it would be better for my children. And now you look up and my kids are going to a school that teaches black kids a complicated Kwanzaa. I prefer my kids knew Hanukkah than Kwanzaa. At least it will come with some financial engineering. <laughs> Kwanzaa doesn't, you know, so they don't teach even Christmas itself, Christmas. I watched the George Floyd documentary that Candace Owens put up. One of the things that his two roommates said was they want a tall guy like me. They want a tall guy like me. And the day when he died, he said a prayer for, you know, eight minutes. Mm -hmm. He said a prayer for eight minutes. 
they hit him with the fentanyl. If you look, the, the guy's knee wasn't even on his neck like that. When he said, mama, mama his, is his girlfriend. They said he screamed for his mama. Mama was his girlfriend. It's in the documentary. But something that hit me, that me up when I was watching the documentary, and it said they want a tall guy like me. When I looked at that image of him, this tall black dude with the bald head, he reminded me of somebody else. Who do you think he reminded me of? Virgil. He reminded me of Virgil. You know what I'm saying? I'm not finna cry in front of y'all because that's how they get me, right? But I know that we lost him. And I know that this white company, Louis Vuitton, is now making statues of him, like as a martyr. And we don't know why exactly. We say it's cancer. But I yeah. mean, I mean, um, mm-hmm. I I want to be careful with this subject because. Wait a second, but tell me, mm-hmm. could you even really run this interview? Because Mav yeah. didn't run my interview. Right. You got know what I'm saying? They blocked me out. The Jewish media blocked me out. This shit lit, right? I'm lit, right? I'm lit. Yeah. I'm lit. You know what I'm saying? J.P. Morgan. I put 140 million dollars yeah. into J.P. Morgan, and they treated me like. So if J.P. Morgan Chase is treating me like that, how they treating the rest no, of y'all? That's outrageous. Yeah. And this this murder was for Chase accounts. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I am outraged. Mm-hmm. By the time people always they want to calm it down. Because no matter what, you didn't yeah. break no law. I didn't break a law. No matter I didn't what, break the, a law. The bank shouldn't be a judge or jury on right. anything that's but going on. But this is it's, right. it's like a social contract. Candace Owens has a word for it. I'm forgetting. But it's basically like they told Candace Owens she couldn't hang out with me. Yeah, I got to say, Kanye here, I mean, he sounds like some cats that I went to undergrad with. Like, they clearly spent far too much time watching YouTube and falling down those rabbit holes instead of, like, actually reading. So we get, like, the anti-Semitic comments with just kind of thrown in with some bizarre rambling. But the backlash to this was uh, uh, swift and has been seemingly getting momentum over the last couple of weeks. I just want to read a list uh, off of some of the things that have happened here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Kanye, Instagram and Twitter suspended his accounts. Gap dropped him. J.P. Morgan dropped him. Uh, He fulfilled his um, uh, obligations to Def Jam as a record label with his last Donda release. At this point, it doesn't seem like he'll be making music with them anymore. Also being reported that Def Jam will no longer be distributing releases from uh, uh, good music, his imprint. So I think that'll, you know, mean basically no more music from being published by Def Jam for people like uh, Cy Hida Prince and Pusha T and things like this. Uh, Balenciaga dropped him. Uh, He was dropped by his talent agency, CAA. Uh, Television production company, MRC, announced that they were shelving a documentary on Kanye. Uh, uh, Adidas dropped him. And according to Forbes, this move meant that Ye uh, was no longer a billionaire and now was only worth a paltry $400 million. Uh, Foot Locker is no longer carrying Yeezy products. George Floyd family uh, was reportedly going to sue him for $250 million for his comments, but now his brother Felanese Floyd is saying it's on hold. And this is the one that really got me. Professional athletes Jalen Brown and Aaron Donald announced that they were leaving Donda Sports. How did I not know that Kanye West had a sports agency? A whole sports agency. Now, when Master P had a sports agency, I was well aware. No Limit Sports. If you're real, then you remember that. He signed up Ricky Williams and everything. Now, beyond that, even wilder than the fact that Donda Sports exists, who is the president of this sports agency? 
None other than former NFL wideout Antonio Brown. That's right. Good old A.B. himself, who, by the way, has put out a statement uh, saying that uh, he's not going anywhere and he's standing with Kanye, uh, I think, to no one's surprise. And so, I mean, so there's a lot there, Dr. Ball. I think there's a lot that's bound up in the Kanye uh, issue in general. And I wanted to bring you on, like I say specifically, because you're someone who I've heard consistently speak to like black Jewish issues with an actual critical analysis, unlike much of what we hear in the press and certainly than what we see on social media. And so I honestly am just wondering your top line thoughts uh, uh, about this and how it's been playing out. And also if there are issues here that are beyond Kanye. Um, uh, so my most top line thought has to be, uh, frankly, that that uh, the Mumia hearing, I'm just now, it's, um, that's why I'm in the car and I'm on the, ro- on the road. Uh, uh, so at some point, you know, uh, uh, we can actually, I think, use this as a good segue to talk about Mumia. Uh, it happened today in the hearing. Uh, but my point in all of this, and again, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't love when, when I or other people, uh, introduce themselves or introduce their, their, uh, perspectives by, with all this autobiography, Yeah. but, but I do, you know, in this case, I will, you know, clarify that, you know, I've never, well, funnily, I've, after hearing Kanye and being reminded what he said, I've never felt more like a Jew, given that, you know, my mother is the, the stereotypical traditional European descended Jew. And then my father, uh, a black man, is, of course, uh, according to Kanye and, and those who think in that, that way, or who interpret the history that way, is one of the original 12 tribe lost Hebrew Israelites. So, so either way, I'm the Jew of Jews uh, <laughs> at this point. But, but, uh, um, you know, listen, the, 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 the real, my real perspective on this it has to begin with, uh, the fact that with a question of why is Kanye in a position to be asked or invited to, to speak on this and related issues. Uh, and if this society or any society were really interested in having a discussion about black communities' relationship to Jews, about the history of Jews and how we find Jews in particular areas of society and its economy, uh, we could do that. And then we could have serious conversations to make people much more clear about what's going on and to make com- comments like Kanye's moot uh, less impactful, less shocking, uh, um, or maybe just even less possible. But but the reality is nobody is interested in that. That's, of course, why Tucker Carlson invites him on and lets him go on and on. Uh, that's why uh, uh, Drink Champs, Revolt TV, Sean Combs, and his uh, advertising-driven commercial media environment would, would set up a situation where people are invited to go and drink. I like drink chance as a show. I think Nori's a good interviewer, but the reality is you're invited to sit there for multiple hours consuming as much alcohol and weed as you can and whatever else. And to speak on a mic. And if you are uh, then asked, questions that should be considered outside your lane, or at least we should be asking more about your, your credentials or how you, you know, got to your levels of expertise on this issue. We're clear you're talented musically. 
whatever I might think of your work is irrelevant, but he's clear he's talented. It's clear you've had an impact on the culture for a a number of years. That's all fine and good. It's clear you, whatever people think of his clothing, it's clear he's got interests and and talents in those areas as well. I'm not clear where he's his expertise on the history of race, economics, class, Jewish history, black history, or anything else comes into play. But I am clear as to the history of why he would be asked to speak on these issues when there are so many other interesting thinkers who might have something to say on this that, that are never invited. And then, and then lastly, uh, the, the disingenuousness that I feel in, in, as it regards uh, the, the, the condemnation of, of Kanye um, in light of what I just said. It's easy to condemn him for what he said, while at the same time not participating in opening up space and creating space for actual conversations to occur. So if, do we really want to know why so many people in the black community, because what Kanye was speaking he is a well-known set of talking points in black uh variations of nationalist and and marginal and 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 even left radical uh, uh, spaces everybody has heard this but do we ever want to have a conversation as to why black people think this or not to the extent that they do or why these the why we keep having these moments where a Kanye or a Deshaun Jackson or a Nick Cannon pop up with a variation of something like this? Or, or do we just want to allow it to maybe even encourage it so that we can use it for very conservative purposes? Of course, as I pointed out elsewhere, uh, the ADL can come out and, and add its conservative Zionist politics to a condemnation and use it as they have literally been shown to do to raise money. Uh, I would argue the same thing happens in conservative black political circles who would then say, uh, let's look at the backlash at Kanye and use this to regurgitate and double down on the myths and misinterpretations of the history that lead to these kinds of bastardized versions of, of history. But instead, so anyway, that's why I'm saying, right, that's what frustrates me in all of this, that, they're, they're, that, that if we do look up, if we're honest, if we look at the, the heads of media and banking, uh, um, and, uh, and, and fashion and other sectors of the economy, we do find uh, by percentage an overpopulation of Jews. Jews acknowledge this. Jews have written in the L.A. Times happily taking credit for it, saying if, if it wasn't for us, there would be no Hollywood, there would be no American culture. Um, and my, but my point is there's a history that explains why this occurs that goes beyond the nonsense of Jews are just scandalous, conniving, money grubbing, you know, behind the scenes Illuminati. Like there's 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 real history that would explain why black people and Jews meet in 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 uh, um, uh, in cross sections of the economy in often negative and hostile moments. And, and that lead and exacerbate these kinds of uh, 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 experiences and, and reactions and, and views. But instead, we don't. But we don't ever. And when nobody wants to really look at that, nobody wants to discuss it. People want to fall back on. We're encouraged to fall back on the tropes and the bullet points 
so that a very conservative politics can ultimately take over and keep everybody arguing confused. So I'll stop here by saying, think of all the times for any of us of a certain age, all the times going back to Professor Grip with, with Public Enemy and all, yeah. all the times that something like this has happened, and yet we are still here. We've made not one step forward in an honest discussion uh, uh, about why black people, not just people, uh, you know, in, in some level of distress, as we see Kanye believing that, but like, re you know, truly decent, thoughtful people do believe these or agree with these viewpoints. Uh, 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 and we're not able to ever really get to it. And the very last, we of course, we would have to acknowledge, of course, that this falls back on the biblical mythology, whereas I just heard on my man Hassan Campbell's channel, he could fall back and say, what do you expect is going to happen to Kanye when he goes against the people that killed Christ? So we're starting with biblical mythology, economic mythology, racial, ethnic class mythology. I mean, there's all kinds of, of problems here uh, and no space to really address them in any honest, substantive way. Uh, so, and, and, and we, we're right back with another example or another. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I actually enjoy uh, drink champs too. I've listened to them in the past. I, I got to say, I'm, I'm a little tickled at the idea that uh, you watch Hassan Campbell, uh, <laughs> Dr. Ball, uh, but it makes sense. Uh, and just for people who don't know, Hassan Campbell is his cat. He was one of the first really uh, prominent and vocal and public uh, people who admitted that he was sexually abused by Africa Bambata, along with a slew of other uh, teenage boys. And I'm sure people will remember. But I mean, he's also like, I mean, he's a thorough dude from Bronx River and, and he acts like it. And yeah, and that's really what I wanted to get at. Um, uh, this issue of like the real history of the relationship between uh, Jewish people and black folks that gets skirted over so much in these uh, conversations, along with um, I think a uh, part of the uh, historic oppression of uh, Jewish people that uh, uh, indelibly colors uh, their experience both in the U.S. And, and in Europe and around the world. And I want to talk more about that and uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal on the other side of our first break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 02521-1320. I continue to be joined by Dr. Jared Ball. And yeah, you know, Dr. Ball, I want to pick up on something you said uh, a moment ago uh, as we continue this conversation about uh, Kanye West, uh, his anti-Semitic comments and sort of the, the deeper context, because what you said, it's literally why I just kind of rolled my eyes when all this kind of happened, because it's like, you know, here we go again with these same uh, uh, talking points. And I also remember not that long ago uh, with a J Electronica, I think he got into it with uh, what's buddy name, Paul Rosenberg, uh, because of his uh, lines about, you know, the synagogue of Satan and stuff uh, in his raps and uh, uh, things like this. But uh, a couple of things you said that hit the nail on the head uh, is when you talked about these attitudes 
within black America to the extent that they exist. And I appreciate that you qualified it in that way, because one of the frustrating and really predictable things about all this is that, again, we have to go through this whole issue about black people supposedly being the vanguard of anti-Semitism in the United States which is absurd. We don't have the institutional power uh, uh, to oppress anybody. Uh, you know what I mean? And anti-Semitism is a reactionary tendency in this society that black people are a part of. So, yes, you will find those attitudes there. But to somehow accuse us of being the, the, the worst perpetrators of it, I think, is just baseless. But what I really want to get to, Dr. Ball, is that history of black folks and Jews that you were speaking of a moment ago that I think to a large extent is simply not known to a lot of people. And, and it's, it's, it's an important piece of context uh, that seems to always be missing in these conversations. Now, obviously this is a long uh, uh, history and I don't expect you to get into every nook and cranny, but what do you think are some of the dynamics that we need to understand when not just talking about Kanye West, but things that need to be understood whenever this uh, conversation comes around? First of all, I'm very glad you, you picked up on that qualification because you are exactly right. Black people are not some vanguard of anti-Semitism, et cetera, and so forth. There's never been some institutional attempt among black people to, to destroy or do damage to Jews, just as there's conversely not been an institutional uh, effort among Jews to liberate black people. So what I think is the best thing, to, uh, what I've, my best simplified understanding of, of all of this is that all of, first of all, all of the encouraged leadership, given the context, all of the encouraged leadership of any group is some form of ignoble, uh, uh, fraudulent, uh, reactionary, conservative representation of whatever group that they claim to, to be representing. So it's like the it's, it's a version of what Kwame Therese says, but the, the worst of us always get to represent us. Mm. Uh, and I think that goes for the case of all groups. So at the point of these interactions, so much of it is, is being you know, taken up by the worst of the representatives of each group who are being encouraged to all this in a, in a context of settler colonialism, global imperialism, capitalism, whatever, whatever broad brush, you know, whatever grand approach we want to put on it um, or variations of them. So, so what ends up happening is Jews, uh, European Jews, looking to avoid variations of oppression suffered by other Europeans, have, have as they've written eloquently about in their in in their own histories in this country, in the United States, that is, look to insinuate themselves into the fabric of the country. The country is a settler, colonial, white supremacist, capitalist <laughs> project. So once that 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 it occurs, that attempt occurs, people will, Jews and anyone else, will fashion themselves to that project and participate in it. Uh, Jews who had been excluded intentionally from other areas of, of, of the economy were forced initially into the, the banking and monetary, the financial wing, which was not seen as, as by the, the elite initially as the, the, the place to be. Same thing with, with, with culture initially in the, in, the, in, the, in the ghettos and the projects in New York and then out to, to Hollywood. Jews were encouraged into those areas because the elite wanted others to manage it for them. And I think take advantage of the fact that when the popular criticism comes, they have this buffer and, and, and group to take the blame. Uh, 
So in the same thing when it comes to music, when it comes to landlords, you know, all of this, the differences occurs in the 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 uh, specific forms of oppression each group got, the the avenues uh, of escape offered to Jews, not offered to black people, and then Jews in certain sort of choke points, so to speak, maybe even pun intended, unfortunately, with the economy, um, end up being the representatives of the state that black people first come into contact with, again, as owners of low-income low housing, uh, 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 the music industry, uh, the entertainment industry, so on and so forth, areas of the economy, areas of society that those Gentile elites did not want to participate in and wanted others to run for them. So this creates a hostility between these groups uh, that 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 still exists to this day. So if if it it, it if it would be more helpful, I think, if we were allowed more substantive conversations to maybe begin where I've just really overly simplified, and we could get into you know have more experts and more you know regular conversation about why these groups end up where they end up and why there are tensions that still exist to this day, it would be much more fruitful and, dare I say, radical and threatening, which is why it never is you know, encouraged to, to take place, uh, uh, allowing for each group to fall back in, you know, on its own mythologies and its own nationalisms, which you know, are at times very important. But if we really want to understand, we want to have an analysis, an objective analysis, then we have to do some of the work that I'm, I'm encouraging here and stop being willing to 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 just follow along this, the more easily laid out uh, tropes um, uh, that I think again are encouraged intentionally so that we constantly have this cycle uh, repeating. Um, it's much easier to say it's it's it, to, to find people and encourage those who can reduce black suffering to the Jews, and it's much easier from the perspective of Jews to say the real problem with anti-Semitism are the most powerless uh, 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 in society who, um, if we're honest, we have not as a collective institutionally looked to help benefit in ways that we should. So uh, anyway, that's, that's, that's as simple yeah. as I can get it. And that's why I'm encouraging more experts have more time to, to really have an honest discussion about it. Yeah, totally. You know, there's another conversation emanating from this that is also uh, a trope that we always hear because of um, the swift and effective backlash on Kanye. It, You know, so we have black people who, I guess, you know, they've thrown any real principle out the window in terms of what uh, Kanye uh, actually said. And they're sort of uh, frustrated with the fact that uh, of what they perceive as um, a collective Jewish backlash, basically, toward Kanye that evidences a kind of unity that, according to them, black people do not have. And this I feel like we this is something that I feel like I heard a lot, particularly as a kid growing up in the 90s. But it's a part of one of these tropes that we were discussing uh, uh, earlier. And this idea, I mean, you heard it all the time. It's like, we'll see what we need to do is we need to get like the Koreans or we need to get like the Jews and blah, 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 and all that sorts of thing, which I actually think dovetails with the whole myth of a black buying power in its own way. But this idea that black people, for whatever reason, are just, you know, woefully incapable of having the same level of unity at uh, that, that other ethnic groups do. 
And I'm reminded of France Fanon when he said that, you know, oppressed people always believe the worst about themselves. But I mean, what what where do you think where does that thinking you think really stem from, Dr. Ball? I mean, obviously, it's connected to some of these uh, broader issues that we're talking about. But I mean, that to me and I think that this is also something that we hear from uh, black people in different uh, uh, areas of the political spectrum and things like that. But it, it to me sort of evidences a kind of lack of collective self-esteem that people really believe that despite all of uh, uh, the, the movement history to the contrary. And so how does all of that strike you in terms of uh, how that conversation's happening? Well, again, I mean, black people can't do what Jews have done because black people are not Jews. Uh, Jews have a specific history that... Uh, that is European Jews in particular have a specific history that, uh, that, that black people do not have, uh, whether it's numbers, whether it's a European ancestry, whether it's, it's, it's whatever it is, an uh, uh, absence of being enslaved, you know, whatever it is, there is a very different history uh, uh, that, that, that has to be explained and, and focused on and understood so that black people would be made clear that, that, that we cannot do what Jews have done. Uh, it cannot be expected that that would be the case. And then I would also argue, I wouldn't suggest that that should be the goal because what I'm arguing is that what, what has made relatively speaking Jews successful is their complicity, uh, again, institutionally along the conservative elite that, that, that dominate, you know, Zionist and other forms of politics, uh, They've had to become complicit in European imperialism and settler colonialism. I'm not advocate. I would not want that for black people uh, for some form of success. But another reason that these mythologies are encouraged is, and again, I'm not, I don't want, I'm not, I'm not suggesting, given even the background of myself that I shared earlier, I'm not suggesting some let's all hold hands and, and walk off together. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying we need, we're not getting honest discussions, even in the criticism that black people, the legitimate criticisms black people would have are not being given honest and, and, and substantive room to breathe uh, 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 and are themselves being disrespected by this nonsense that we get. But what I'm, so, but what I'm saying is, is that if, if um, black people would, well, I'll, anyway, I, I guess what I'm just simply saying is that, that, so anyway, I'll, 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 let me come back to this and say that the mythology, I think, is encouraged to help uh, confuse these roles and these specific histories uh, that, that the roles that are being played in contemporary economy and society and then the histories that, that led to them uh, so that we don't ever get there, uh, that we can't ever really have this conversation. Then, for instance, we can't ask about what, what, what is it that First of all, we can't ask about the inequality that exists within Jewish communities. Like we, we, we were given a fantasy that every Jew is doing well, uh, and that's not the case both within the United States and elsewhere. Um, so, so then what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean then that, again, we're getting only versions of, of Judaism and Jews that are ultimately conservative? And I mean this, by the way, from Seinfeld to whoever you would see on uh, uh, Fox News. Uh, the, the, that spectrum of Judaism, of Jewish, of European Jewish life and community and politics is very conservative and does not account for all that exists in the Jewish community. But uh, uh, again, that radical community is not welcomed, is not heard from uh, any more than from any other group 
And that's also, I think, misunderstood in many ways. This is some suggestion that 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 either Jewish radicals don't exist, or if they did, they would be as prominently placed and positioned uh, as, again, a Seinfeld or, or whomever else is getting called out. Um, but again, so ultimately, what, what, like to your point about buying power, the, the overlap or the similarity is that the mythologies stand in for, for a substantive analysis that is meant to lead us back to as Fred Hampton said, answers questions that don't answers that don't answer and conclusions that don't conclude. Uh, and then next, you know, Kanye will get condemned or he'll get supported. Conservative, you know, the ADL has already been, you know, putting out its statements and will use this to fundraise the Anti Defamation League, the very conservative Zionist group. Uh, there will be black conservative groups that will say, look, Kanye, Kanye's being cut off by Adidas and all the stuff you read off at the top is proof that he was right. Uh, and they'll forget and leave out the initial question, which I didn't even ask, take to ask until now myself, which is, Kanye, if, if what you're saying now is getting you cut off, what is it that you were saying that everyone in power agreed with that got you to the place you are now? because the same mechanism that you're condemning must have lofted you up. Uh, so what does that say about what you were saying all these years uh, in terms of, of, of political damage and cultural damage uh, that the, this ignoble group of, 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 of rulers uh, so, so found so much value in? Um, so anyway, but, but again, we're not meant to have any of these conversations or, or raise any of these questions, so... Yeah. And just for anyone who's uh, curious, uh, when uh, Dr. Balls mentioned Jewish radicals, there's actually a book called Jewish Radicals, a documentary, a documentary reader, uh, part of the Goldstein Gorin series in American Jewish history, just for those that are interested. And uh, shout out to the By Any Means Necessary chat. Uh, Ricky Ryan said, uh, meanwhile, U.S. imperialism doesn't care about the African or the Jew. That, that's 100 percent true. And it's important that we, we, we raise that because we're in a moment where we're seeing a renewed effort to conflate uh, anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism, which, of course, implies a conflation of Jewish identity. Excuse me. <clears throat> It presupposes a conflation of Jewish identity itself with apartheid Israel, something that I would argue is actually quite anti-Semitic in and of itself. So I wanted to bring that in as well. But uh, moving forward a little bit here, doctor, I, I didn't want to bury the lead because, as you say, you were in Philadelphia for the latest hearing around journalist and political prisoner Mumia Abu-Jamal. And I was hoping you could break down uh, what's happening there. Just shout out to everybody who sustains their support for Mumia and all the people who, you know, like when I show up periodically, I see people who have been at every rally, at every court hearing, going back to when Judge Sabo was in charge, as we saw today. Uh, and we'll hear from, uh, actually on my show Friday, with, with the help of NETFA, who was there as well. Shout out to NETFA and, 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 and all the others who were there uh, as well. Um, but the short of it is the judge, uh, the, the very black woman judge with her mostly black law clerk staff and, and black guards and bailiffs, uh, said Mumia's case is, is you know, uh, threw it out, dismissed dismissed uh, the, the case that his lawyers brought before the court, which essentially, and it's, it's a little more complicated than I can probably clarify right now, but essentially, because uh, I'm, I'm still struggling to keep up with all the details, but essentially 
um, Mumia's lawyers had had argued that uh, 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 an, an affidavit given by um, someone in 2019 showed that evidence that the prosecution had related to jury selection in the initial trial should have been turned over to Mumia's team long ago, uh, suggesting with a couple of other things involved that Mumia should at least get a new trial. Um, the judge, in a very sisterly and friendly style, uh, brought, I thought, very heavy-handed condemnation of, of Mumia's team, of the argument, and basically said, you all didn't prove anything. You, we, we, meaning she and her team, she said, spent hours looking for evidence to support the claims that Mumia's lawyers were putting in their statements that, that his lawyers should have had and um, could not find any, and that, that everything that they were bringing today uh, had been ruled on in various courts and in various ways over the years for, for, for many decades now. Uh, and if they didn't get this 40 years ago, that, that, that she sees no reason why they should get it now. So to, to the point of, of even Ricky's comment, uh, imperialism doesn't care. Uh, and, um, uh, after a surreal morning of, of, of watching this, the same judge put I don't know, a handful of black and brown men back into various states of, of, of incarceration before getting to Mumia's case. Uh, it was, it, it, it's just a, a stark reminder. Imperialism doesn't really care. Uh, and if you do happen to be blacker and poorer and then dare you be accused of picking up a gun against a police officer uh, and, be, and on top of that be associated with radical politics and black liberation, it, it doesn't look good for you. And as she said, that is the judge. Uh, she was, again, from my point of view, chastising his lawyers and saying, I am bound by the laws and regulations of Philadelphia's, or I should say Pennsylvania's Supreme Court and appellate court. And nothing you brought here contradicts anything that those courts have said. So, you know, I'm giving you 20 days, so they're going to come back on December 16th. You know, if you want to, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if appeal was the official word, but I guess if you want to respond, I thought is more what she said. But, uh, and, you know, and by the way, she 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 said, basically, it, it, I mean, uh, uh, after hearing everything, she said, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to take a, a you know, a, a break, whatever, they, I forgot what they call the break now. Recess? Steps out the recess for five and literally five, six minutes. She comes back with multiple copies of a 30 plus page statement explaining why she was dismissing the case, which so clearly this thing had been written in advance. Um, everything that we heard in court today was uh, more or less red tape. And uh, uh, unfortunately, Mumia is not looking like he's going to uh, get, get a new hearing, much less actually get out. So, uh, it was it, it was for me a, a surreal and 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 I think for all of us a, a frustrating and and sad uh, uh, day. Now, you know that said, it was good to see you know uh, you know Pam Africa was out there, Noel Hanrahan was out there, Johanna Fernandez was there, uh, uh, Dr. Crystal Strong and crew were outside with the protests. I mean, it, it, it's always good to see people in some sort of resistance and response back, but. 
but the sad reality is it was it was not a, a good day for uh, uh, Mumia. Uh, uh, yeah, it was just not a good day for Mumia. Definitely. Well, we're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Dr. Jared Ball is here as we continue. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Ball, I was just thinking over the break. Obviously, we're talking about uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, perhaps the world's uh, best known political prisoner, uh, uh, a journalist, uh, someone who has continued to contribute uh, to the movement, even after all these years uh, unjustly behind the wall. And uh, also thinking about, you know, something that I I believe we've discussed before in terms of how really it's only uh, black radical media that consistently raises the issue of not only uh, Mumia, but of uh, uh, other uh, political prisoners as well. And, you know, even thinking back to our uh, conversation around uh, Kanye West, because he's one of those rappers who, you know, every so often he'll he'll drop something uh, politically um, uh, aware or socially conscious in his raps. I'm thinking of songs like, uh, you know, crack music. I mean, there's a lot of examples where he sprinkles that in. I think we could say the same for like a Kendrick Lamar or, uh, 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 J Cole. And, you know, it's just funny about what really constitutes like quote, a political rapper, uh, for people. I mean, as opposed to the fact that, you know, these are black people in the United States who obviously see all these things happen and feel the need to comment on them. And somehow that becomes becomes a part of their image, even if it's not something that's like uh, consistently shown to be a part of their work um, outside of music and things uh, uh, like that. And so even that seems to be used as a kind of defense for some of the things that we've been seeing here lately. But uh, I want to get to a caller that we have on the line here. Allie, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I wanted to say hello to you and your guest. And uh, I have a comment about um, Candace Owen and Kanye West. I saw on the Internet them um, with two. They were wearing um, some sweatshirts. And at the back of the sweatshirt, they say, White Lives Matter. And my question to both of you is, um, you know what happened with O.J. Simpson and Cosby and others, that as soon as they get in trouble, they run to the black community for for them to defend them. But Kanyez have been very disrespectful to the black community, and you know how, supporting uh, um, uh, Trump, um, uh, doing, you know, a, a lot of things. And one of the things is that when I saw that that, that sweatshirt with both of them wearing, it was like, I couldn't believe it, that these two people, these two, they weren't wearing those sweatshirts. So my question is, do you think that now he's going to be running to like the rest of them back to the black community for their support because of the trouble that he's in, especially in um, losing all the money in all those contracts. Thank you. 
Thank you, Ali. I appreciate you calling in as always. Hope to hear from you again soon. And I mean, yeah, I think the White Lives Matter thing is is a part of it because it it it's it, it, to me it's something that's framed to sound like some deep political statement. But like, what what could it really mean? You know what I mean? It, and and frankly, I don't think it's something that would get that much attention if it wasn't you know being uh, advanced by one of the biggest artists in the world. But I don't want to go on too much here, Doctor. I definitely want to get uh, your response to our caller here. Well, first, very quickly to your previous point, uh, I do want to acknowledge that it's not just the black radical press that, that covers political prisoners. There are, uh, I think, a marginal, marginalized, genuine white left and multiracial left that does that work. Uh, it's the mm-hmm. more popular white left liberal press that ignores that 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 work prominently, uh, but anyway. And then the other thing would be to to your caller. I I would say we shouldn't be surprised that Candace Owens put the shirt on. I mean, she's all sponsored. She's Daily Wired. You know, Ben Shapiro sponsored. She lives it. Uh, she that's her that's her world. And of course, the message is it's just a message to say that to the white conservatives uh, that that you have at least two black people uh, on your team. And and from you know and from Candace and Kanye, it's it's a message to 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 what they think is a pot of money that we're still here to get that bag. Um, but uh, Kanye is already getting pockets of support from the black community. Uh, I think again, I think there is, I think actually a legitimate visceral reaction in pockets of the black community to just defend black famous people. Um, mm. You know, which which I think is is understandable. It's legitimate. I think it needs to be criticized, corrected, politically educated, and radicalized. But I think I, you know, I get it. Uh, uh, you know, so so he's already getting that, and I think to a certain extent he might. You know, but but I think he's not targeting the black community. I think he's looking for sanctuary in the white conservative community. Uh, another clip that came out more, even more prominently was where he was more recently, I should say, is where he said something to the effect that he wants to become a white man. Like his, his goal in terms of his accumulation of power is to be a white man. Uh, so, so his whole, I, I, I don't, I think he sees himself as post black and 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 even post needing black, uh, uh, he, I think he sees himself very differently than even other celebrities have done. Uh, so I, that's what I think. I, you know, I, um, he's he's headed for the, the the that that big pot of white conservative money. All right. Now, I want to I want to talk more about this because I think you're really touching on something here in terms of Kanye and uh, uh, this post blackness. I mean, in in hearing it, it reminds me of what O.J. Simpson was was trying to do and and perhaps would have done successfully had not uh, a certain incidents intervened. And so what 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 do you make of that then, uh, doctor? Like, is it simply just like a cash grab for people who are trying to do this, like this idea of advancing beyond needing black people, I think is deep, particularly when we're talking about the cult of celebrity uh, here in the U S that certainly Kanye benefits for. And what's so wild about it is I think you're right. I think uh, Kanye West does fundamentally see himself differently than a lot of other people do, including the, uh, uh, the, the, the legions of black people that spring to his defense whenever he gets into some mess. So what, what is that about then? You know? 
I, you know, I, I, I am loath to recommend commercial media, but my con- I, I, I will contradict myself here. I think the best explanation for this is that six-part OJ made in America that, that coincidentally or not, is made by a half-black Jew. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, but I'm just saying, you know, I think, you know, like, like, but I think it really does a brilliant job of breaking down how this society works, how pop culture works, how white people see black people, how black people are invited. Certainly, we don't always, uh, 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 you know, fall for it, but are always invited to to aspire to to being again post black to that crossover moment. Uh, um, OJ, I mean, yeah, so anyway, so I, I'll just leave it there. I don't I don't I don't want to take up too much time trying to outdo what that series does. I would just encourage people to check that out. I use it in my classes all the time. I think it does a brilliant job. Uh, of and, and if if you just encourage that people watch it for more than just the focus on OJ's story, because it really talks about how the society uh, uh, is is constantly looking for that is U.S. society is constantly looking for uh, a, a a a manageable blackness, uh, and then it invites black people uh, here and there. To, to say, if you will transcend or uh, claim that you are transcending uh, and allow us to fully take advantage of you for advertising, for ideological, uh, other broader ideological purposes, et cetera, uh, you will be well rewarded and you will see a world. I mean, you have to think about the world Kanye thought he was in, whether he's a billionaire or not. Uh, when you're hanging out with Elon Musk and Bezos, and that and that's your what you think at least is your friend group, and you're talking about on Drink Champs, calling them on the phone and being on flights with that, you know, you're experiencing a world that almost none of us will even see much experience. Like we don't even know what that that level of wealth is actually like. Um, so so so. Uh, uh, I, I think it does, you know, never mind all what is said about his mental state, his drug addiction or, or abuse or whatever. I mean, I, I could easily see. And then, of course, anyone who says that they don't want to read books anymore is clearly not functioning at the highest level. So, you know, what you, you put all that together and I can easily see why he would come across as crazy to us. And he would think of himself as being above uh, any of the backlash that he's even getting now. Um, and I think he is not able to see how he is being used. Uh, and and that is ultimately my point in this whole Kanye discussion, is that he is ultimately being used so that we don't raise the kind of fundamental questions that would have had us freeing Mumia today rather than watching him get re or his case just get thrown out yet again. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the case. And I appreciate you, you raising this because I've been trying to put my finger on this dynamic with Kanye ever since like that famous rant he uh, did on uh, uh, with with Sway, you know, the whole you ain't got the answer Sway piece, because that that was uh, one of at least one of the first viral moments where he's talking about how badly he wants to be in the room and have some real influence 
with these, you know, uh, uh, titans of uh, fashion and power and money, like you say, hanging out with uh, Elon Musk and things like that. For a while now, Kanye has very vocally wanted to uh, uh, make inroads with that world, which brings in what? The class question, right? The thing that we talk about every day here on the show. And I think on some level, Kanye feels a tension or a contradiction between his class aspirations and uh, uh, the issue of black oppression. But I, I tend to agree with you, uh, Dr. Ball, that uh, he, he's pretty clear on his goal of sort of occupying that space, if you will, and being in that upper echelon of the capitalist class. He is very willing to do that to uh, the denigration of everything else, which I do think uh, leaves him a vulnerable to be used by these right wing elements like Candace Owens and others. And he'll do it gladly if it helps move him towards that goal. So if that means him being a uh, quote unquote canceled, if that means him losing all these deals and having this bad PR at this moment, it, it it's not evident that he's like remorseful about any of this. Of course, only um, a, a time will tell, but it does seem that he has that, uh, uh, ultimate goal in mind and is willing to pay any price to uh, get it. And so this is like that frustrating uh, uh, aspect of Kanye of, you know, uh, uh, is it just him being an eccentric artist? Is it him being another annoying, uh, rich and uh, a famous person? Is it true that he's uh, just being misunderstood? Is he, you know, another black man that's being uh, attacked for telling the quote unquote truth, which is something you see people saying as well. I mean, is, is it his mental health? It, 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 it's all of these questions that can make him such a, a frustrating figure to even discuss, which again is why I oftentimes just kind of choose not to. But uh, as we've been discussing this hour, I do think that there are some other uh, deeper uh, 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 issues there at play that I think go far beyond and certainly predate uh, a Kanye West that I think are, are worth getting into. And of course, pop culture, like everything else, is uh, uh, absolutely political. But just like with anything else we discuss, we have to get to these deeper aspects of it, these uh, more systemic and historical roots of it, if we're going to really understand it and actually get something out of it besides entertainment. But we're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Dr. Jared Ball, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.